In Jesus' name, amen. A couple weeks ago, I went to a funeral of a friend of mine. I'd grown up with this young man. He was a young man. He was 39 years old. He was in great shape. He was a cyclist, lived in Dallas. And about two months before he died, he had chest pains. His father also died of a heart condition. And he goes to the doctor in Dallas, and the doctor runs some tests and talks with Blair Lang, is his name, and says, Blair, how old are you? And he says, I'm 39. And he looks at his stats, and he goes, listen, you are fine. A couple of months later, in his garage apartment in Dallas, he's on his trainer. His wife takes the kids to school. He seems to be riding for an awfully long time. And his wife, Katie, comes to find her husband to check on him, and there she finds her husband had died of a massive heart attack at age 39. It is sobering, isn't it, those of you who have been there, when someone who is close to your age dies, not because of an accident, but of natural causes. Not because of a disease specifically, although heart disease is indeed a disease. It's very sobering. The cardiologist who examined Blair was a very fine doctor, but he might not have asked the right questions of Blair or might not have examined him as thoroughly as he might have otherwise done because he knew that he was a young 39-year-old man. Many of you, when you listen to sermons, you listen to it as though you were the doctor examining the sermon or examining the worship service, and you really don't ask the right questions as you come to worship. You don't examine yourself thoroughly enough in relationship to what's going on in a worship service. And you think, listen, I'm young. I've got many more years to live. This is a Sunday. I've got a busy afternoon. I'm fine. If Psalm 95 was a medical doctor, it would be for us a cardiologist and a good one. Because this psalm throughout the history of God's people has been an almost near perfect example of a how we should worship him. Because the health of your heart is determined by its resting place. Much like the health of our hearts physically are determined by its resting pace of beats per minute, so spiritually the health of your heart is determined by its resting place. And in this psalm we're going to see what exactly happens to you personally, what happens to you publicly, And then what is the result? So let's look together. What happens to you in worship personally? Notice what the text says in Psalm 35. Well, first, let me give you a definition of what worship is because many of us come from different backgrounds to know what worship is. Here's a definition. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes and engages your whole being. Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value, ultimate value to something that energizes and engages your whole being. Worship, according to this text, is something that engages your emotions. Hello, Presbyterians, do you hear me? Emotions, your will, 
and your mind. The text breaks out really quite simply. If you look at it with me, you'll see how it breaks out. There's three very simple calls. In verse 1, look at what the text says, if you have it before you in your bulletin. It says, oh, come, let us what? Let us sing. That's emotional language, isn't it? Songs of praise, joyful music. And then later in verse 6, what does it say? It says, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel. That is the language of the will. It is language of submission. It is language of volition, something that you are to do in response to worship. And then you see in verse 7, it changes from the O come, it changes to instruction. Today, if you hear his voice, worship is instructional. It should engage your mind. So the text breaks out very simply with these three calls. O come, let us sing. O come, let us bow down. And today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his voice, today, in other words, listen and use your mind. Worships is, worship is something that engages your emotion, it engages your will, and it engages your mind. If you come to a worship service and you experience this incredible emotional service, you weep, you cry, you may shout for joy, but you haven't actually engaged your will, your life hasn't changed, or you haven't actually engaged your mind. You have done something, but you have not done worship. Or if you come to a worship service and you leave with this great motivation to go and do and obey and do what the Lord asks of you to do. You've engaged your volition, but really you're not cut to the heart emotionally. You're just doing it out of sheer duty. It hasn't really engaged your mind. You have not worshiped. Or likewise, please hear me, if you come to worship and you learn, you have just had this amazing morning of learning something new about God's word, but you leave and you're not cut to the heart emotionally and you are not changed in your volition. You're not changed in what you do. You have done something, but you have not worshiped. Worship always engages all three things according to this text. It engages your emotions. It engages your will. It engages your mind. Let me ask you a very, very practical question. How do you evaluate a worship service? Some of you, before you came to Trinity, you worshiped at places, you worshiped for a year at different churches. Let me ask you a question. How did you decide whether that worship service was a good worship service or not? You all have criteria. For some of you, it is the quality of the sermon. In other words, if the sermon helps me learn something, then that means it was a good worship service. The singing can be horrible. The ambiance, bad. The coffee, terrible. But if the sermon's good, okay, that's a good worship service. Hmm, interesting. For some of you, it's the singing. If the singing is good and the musicians are fantastic, then that morning for you of worship was fantastic. It was wonderful. For those of you, it's all the details. It's like, is the resource table laid out cleanly? Is there a way for them to follow up with guests? Is, you know, did I feel welcome there? Was the coffee good? And the sermon is okay, that's okay, but the people are nice. 
How do you evaluate a corporate worship service? If you evaluate a corporate worship service just by how it engages your mind, just by how it engages your emotions, just how it engages your will, do you know what you become? You become a consumer. Let me help you with a tool to evaluate corporate worship. If you were to draw a triangle on your piece of paper or just have it in your mind, and the apex of this triangle, there are three points, and you have emotion, will, mind. And you were to come to a worship service, you should be able to place something at each of those apexes of that triangle. Some way that you are cut to the heart emotionally, where the sermon stopped being a sermon you stop taking notes and you begin to listen to what the Holy Spirit was doing in your life. There was a time when you felt convicted of your sin and you were called to obey, that your life would be changed and be different, and that you learned something new about yourself and your own inability, actually, to know yourself as you ought to, and therefore the need for the community or the amazing beauty of your Savior who loves you. At the apex of these triangles, at each of the vertices, if you will, there should be something. The heart, the emotions, the will, and the mind. In the Bible, the Lord gives us one word for where worship ought to happen. Do you know what that word is? Just one word. It's used 850 times in the Old Testament alone. It is the totality of your being. It is the whole person. And God says you ought to worship with all of your heart. That's the word. Now, when you think about heart, you think about children, you may think about a physical muscle in your body. That's not the kind of heart I'm talking about when I talk about the biblical view of the heart. In the Bible, your heart is the totality of who you are as a person. It is your personality. It is your gifts. It is your tendency. It is all of your being. John Bunyan wrote a book, a very famous allegory. And many of you have probably read Pilgrim's Progress. Any of you read that book? It's a very fun book actually to read to your family. It's a wonderful story. But you know, he also wrote another allegory that's less well known and it's called Holy War. It's a horrible title these days. It's not about Middle Eastern conflict. It's, it's about the war, war over your heart. And in this allegory, he pictures your heart as a city and there are two gates to this city. There's an eye gate and an ear gate. And you can only get to the city through the eye or through the ear. And Bunyan says there are sentries that stand watch at the eye gate and the ear gate to protect your heart. Why? Because he knows that your heart is the totality of who you are. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the, strings, the springs of life. Edwards called the heart the core of our affections. Augustine called the heart the core of our will. And the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 2 says the heart is the transformation of your, of your mind. 
The biblical authors come at the heart at different ways, but they're all talking about the same thing. This incredible seat of your emotions, of your will, and of your mind. The psalmist knows the heart of worship engages the emotion because biblically the heart can be filled with joy, it can be filled with gladness, it can be filled with tumult and rage and sorrow and bitterness. The heart can be wounded, can't it? It can be stricken, smitten, and afflicted. It can be broken. Your heart can be lost. Your heart can burst. It can faint and it can fail. The psalmist also knows that the heart engages the will. Biblically, the heart can be enlarged to obey. It can be hard, it can be soft. It can be truthful, it can be blameless, it can be pure. It can be wily, it can be evil. It can be proud, it can be circumcised. It can be stony or fleshly. It can be stubborn. It can be tested. It can be guided. And it can be captivated. You have captivated my heart, Solomon says. Oh, my sister, my bride, you have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. The psalmist also knows that your heart can be engaged intellectually. Biblically, the heart can think It can have understanding, it can be wise, it has a memory, it has consciousness. It can have knowledge, discernment, judgment. It can have direction. Psalm 90.12 says, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The heart is the core of who you are. And worship, the quality, the measure of your health in worship is determined by the resting place of your heart. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. The heart can be inclined, it can be instructed. The Bible says that the Lord can write on your heart in such a way that it can be transformed by the very words that he writes on it. It can be poured out, it can air. The heart can have secrets. The heart can be whole or it can be double. And therefore, in worship, if worship doesn't engage your whole heart, your emotions, your will, and your mind, you have not worshiped. And let me be very frank. Each of us have a tendency toward one of these three aspects of worship. And many of us grew up with churches that emphasized one of these three aspects. And indeed, Trinity has tendencies toward one of these three aspects. I hope that we are well balanced over the course of our years together, but we will err toward one of these tendencies too. And it's our job as the session of our church to help us form worship and conduct worship in a way that actually hits all three of these. If you grew up, for example, in a church that was very, very emotional in its worship, very emotional, The singing was such a crucial part of the worship service itself. And they might bring in other things besides just the setting in which you were. They might bring in props or they might bring in something to help you feel the emotional weight of what was going on in worship. That's not unlike what they used to do in the temple, by the way. 
But then when you come to Trinity and you find that your mind engages in a different way, that you're reading words that are big words that are harder to understand, that you're confessing, that you're actually learning about yourself in a deeper way. And your tendency is coming out of this emotional worship service is to tamp down that emotion. Are you with me? But I want to say to you very carefully, it is okay to tamp that emotion down. It's okay. Because you're learning how to engage your mind and your will, but please don't leave it tamped down. Worship should be emotional. You should sing. You should be like the seven-year-old little girl who just wants to dance in the aisles. Like, you should sing. You should not be afraid of that. If what you really believed was true in the language that you sung, who of you would not dance? but you're afraid to do that. Are you worshiping? Or some of you come from very intellectual, expositional preaching churches where they tamp down the emotion. It was very, it was done decently in an order. And this is where our tendency falls. And you, you, you come to experience the emotion. And so you become much more emotional in your worship. That's great. And you just kind of shut the mind down and you go based upon how you feel. That's fine to do that for a season please don't do it very long. Or you come to a church where you just want to know what to do this week. Just, just give me seven things to do, please. Please, just give me something to do. If it's not practical, it's not a very good. Listen, it is okay. It is okay for you to walk out of here with something to do. In fact, there's a book called the Bible that's full of commands for what we should do to obey. But you don't do them because you do them to serve Jesus and make him love you more. You do them as a fruit of what he has done in your life. This week, I just want to challenge you in a quiet time in your week, some moment of silence to draw that triangle out and to ask yourself, where am I growing with worship? Am I growing in what I'm learning? Am I growing in understanding worship to be, yes, very emotional, sing? Am I growing in what I'm supposed to obey? And where do I need to confess in those three areas? That's what Psalm 95 calls us to do. Do you ever wonder, I, some visual artists I know get frustrated. When I used to do campus ministry, I, my students used to say, like, I want to draw in worship. And so we would like have an easel and they would draw during worship and they would just draw things. We tried this for, for a, a time. It was wonderfully helpful for the artist. In fact, eventually we moved the canvases to the back to let them draw. It was wonderfully helpful for them. But the whole congregation could not really engage with them in the visual arts. It really was only limited to one person who could do it in the back. You ever wonder why the Bible talks so much about singing? Because singing is the only art form where everybody can participate with equal ownership. Have you ever thought about that? Like the, the goal of the musicians is to lead God's people into worship. It's not just to captivate your attention. I mean, let's Go to a show if we want that. They are to lead you into worship so that you can be equal participants in worship together with them. When it says, oh come, let us sing to the Lord, it is calling us to sing as God's people. And singing is essential to what it means to be 
worshiping with God's people because it is an activity with which we all have equal ownership. And therefore, I know some of us don't have good voices. I'm one of those. It doesn't say sing on key. It just says make a joyful noise and you should sing. The quality of our worship service at Trinity is measured in part by the volume with which the congregation sings. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout to the God of our salvation. Now, if worship is ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that energizes and engages your, your whole heart, and we've said that the health of your heart is determined by its resting place, we see what happens privately when you worship, that your mind, your emotion, your will is engaged. But what happens publicly? What do you do in worship? We'll look back at the text with me. Just scour the first several verses and you'll see several things that we are called to do. The first thing that we're called to do is come together. Notice that the first pronoun in this passage is the first person plural, us. Come let us sing to the Lord. We are to worship with other believers. Worship is corporate. It is meant to be experienced in community. In fact, the joy of worship isn't complete until you actually share it with another person. You know what this is like. When, when you see something that you're joined and that you're worshiping, you want to, by nature, share it with other people. And all of your private worship, your time with Jesus, your time reading the Bible alone, your singing in your car, that is wonderful. But you know what that is? That is the preparation for worship for coming together on Sundays. Your private worship is to drive you into corporate worship. Because notice, in the Bible, the primary means of worship in heaven is what? It is not sitting on a cloud with your ushered, issued harp and your wings plucking a tune to Jesus for all eternity. It is sitting amongst the throng of God's people, singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Private worship is meant to draw you into public worship. So if you are at bedside church on Sunday morning and you're saying, this is worship. No, it is not. Because God intends you to worship together with his people. Let us sing to the Lord. As I mentioned, the second thing it calls us to do is to sing, to praise him. And I'll encourage families, if you'll take these bulletins, we put the scores in the bulletins in there very intentionally so that you can use them as you sing lullabies to your children when they go to bed at night. And you can sing them as a family. Sometimes, Wesley knew this, it was easier to sing a devotion than it was to actually read one. And when your children are small, sing these songs at the dinner table together. Sing and prepare them to worship God's people. We don't yet have a building. And we have to overcome some obstacles, don't we, when you come to worship at Trinity. But the most beautiful thing any church, no matter how beautiful and ancient their cathedral might be, the most beautiful thing in worship is the sound of the people worshiping. And you know what? We are therefore rich. 
with our facility because you are God's building. And your call on Sunday is to sing. It is emotional. It engages your mind. It engages your will. Third, notice it says in verse two, let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Coming into God's presence is crucial. In some ways, God is everywhere. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere. Yes, Psalm 139 says that. But in another way, isn't it curious that David says, please do not remove me from your presence, Psalm 51. To come into his presence has a couple of different meanings in Scripture. It means to come before him as a subject comes before their king. Look at verse 8. It says, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. God called us away from King Pharaoh. He called Israel to be in subject under the one king of the wilderness. And they grumbled and they, compl they complained. But God says, you come to me as subjects come to a king, holy and reverent and in awe. It also means that you come before him as a friend. Look at verse 7. It says, we hear his voice. He talks to us as a friend talks to us. It means that worship is intimate. It's a conversation. It's face-to-face -face with one another. It's a personal interaction. And third, when it says we come into his presence, it means that the Holy Spirit works on our hearts in such a way as to give us a sense of his nearness and the reality of his very presence. In worship, we are seeking the very same thing, submission to his kingship, the intimacy with a friend, and a great sense of his reality. That's what it means to come together in worship. And then fourth, it says down in verse seven, we hear his voice. In worship, we come together. In worship, we sing. In worship, we come into his presence and we hear his voice. Worship requires as much intellectual energy as sitting in your algebra class does. It takes as much intellectual energy as doing a complicated math problem. Why? Because you have to listen well. And sometimes it's hard to listen, isn't it? But to listen well to sermons is an art form that takes time. But you're listening for how the Holy Spirit is using his word to speak his truth into your life. And so in this text, the psalmist then shifts gears on us as he comes toward the end. And he says, what is there for the result of worship? The result of worship, if you listen well, is that your heart finds rest. It says, for 40 years I loathed that generation, speaking about what happens in Numbers 14 and later in Numbers 20, where Israel was in the wilderness and they rebelled against God the king and they wanted to do whatever they wanted. They complained, they moaned against him. And God says, God, there is therefore one year where you will wander in this wilderness for every day the spies sought out the land of Canaan. They were in the land of Canaan for 40 years. The 10 came back and said, there's no way. The two, Caleb and Joshua said, oh, we can do it. And they complained and grumbled and said, okay, one year for every day. You have 40 years. And he let an entire generation die before he let the people of God enter 
And even Moses himself wasn't able to enter, but they entered under the reign and leadership of whom? Of Joshua. And as God's people today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because where does your heart find its rest? Does your heart find its rest in watching NCAA football on Saturdays? Okay, maybe it does a little bit. But does your heart find its rest ultimately in recreation? Does your heart find its rest ultimately in the numbers on your accounts? Does your heart find its rest ultimately in your performance at work, in the quality or the criteria that you've set up for your children and their ability to fulfill them? Does your heart find its rest, students, in always pleasing your mom and dad or your teachers? Or does your heart find its rest in the greater Joshua? Does your heart find its rest in the one who came to spy out the land like Joshua did, except he didn't return home to give a good report. He gave the good report as he dwelt with us. And Jesus didn't just lead us across the river into the land. Jesus walked up the hill of Golgotha and he proclaimed the good news with outstretched hands as he died for us on the cross as the greater prophet of God, leading his people to worship him in spirit and truth. You see, friends, it was Jesus who was the one who gave us the Sabbath rest, not only of creation, but the Sabbath rest of redemption. That when you find your rest in his finished work for you, that when you're able to come together to worship God on a Sunday morning and to have your emotions ablazed by the beauty and the grandeur of Jesus, to have your will struck with conviction that you need to therefore become who you are, as a Christian, when you have your mind changed and you begin to see how beautiful he is, then you are beginning to worship. It is like if you were to have a very old gift from your grandparent. Let's say it's a brooch, right? This necklace with lots of jewels on it that your grandmother gives to you. And you just have this old thing sitting in your closet and you know it's there. You see it all the time. You just kind of, it's like play jewelry to you. And one day, cleaning out your closet, you decide to take this thing out and really look at it. Huh, it's unique. And you decide to take it down to John E. Kohler, the jeweler, and you decide to let John examine this. And, you know, he does what jewelers do. He puts a little glass thing on his eye and he looks at it. And he examines this. And he turns it and he looks at the color and he looks at the facets and he looks at all the things that a jeweler does to examine the value of something to give an appraisal for it. And after a couple of minutes of doing this, you know, the little magnifying glass on his eye pops off and he lays this down and he backs up and he starts sweating. Because the jeweler knows that that brooch that Jesus thought was kind of like a trinket that your grandmother gave you, is more valuable than anything in his store. In fact, that brooch is more valuable than everything he has had in his store for 30 years. And he steps back from it. And he looks at you and he shares this news for you, with you. And all of a sudden, you look at this brooch completely differently. Because you realize that something that you've had for so long and didn't really value was infinitely more valuable than you could have ever dreamt. And when Christ 
died on the cross for you. He gave you something that was infinitely valuable. He gave you the ability to rest in his finished work. Today, friends, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Your Savior loves you. He has given himself to you. He is of infinite worth. The health of your heart is dependent upon its resting place. When you finally rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you will find that you are worshiping God with all of your emotions, with all of your will, and with all of your mind. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we ask as your people that you would help us to know that you have given us something infinitely valuable. Would you help us to feel the worth of it? Would you change us by it? Thank you, Jesus, that your finished work is the only place that we can find our true Sabbath rest. And so we lay down our deadly doings down at your feet and we rest in you and you alone, gloriously complete. Oh, may that change us, Father, we pray. Amen.